thank you so much for tuning into the logs. Coming up, episode four, how desire leads to suffering. Do you know what a hungry ghost is? Look it up right now if you can. I'll give you a second. Search for images. And I can't stress enough. If you can, if you're driving, please don't do this. I will do my best to describe it to you in a second. Did you see it? Isn't it something that will haunt your nightmares? They look like these shriveled up masses of very thin mummy without the wraps. And they've just got this huge belly, wisps of hair flying about, and a very, very tiny mouth. Hungry ghosts are driven by an intense desire for something that violates all emotion in the being. They carry this large stomach constantly. It constantly calls for food, rumbles and begs. But with their tiny mouths, the hungry ghosts cannot even eat fast enough to satiate their hunger. But what are these hungry ghosts? Where do they come from? Well, actually, they come from Chinese and Vietnamese folklore. And in some aspects, they're connected to Buddhist religions. And they just represent the extreme that comes from desire. The thing that comes from people's unhealthy habits. And these hungry ghosts are created by truly horrendous means. In these religions, it's believed that all people, once they pass, will become a ghost and live amongst the living non-visible to them but there and usually venerated as ancestors eventually though a time will come when the ghost will pass away a second time and this is all a relatively tame ordeal hungry ghosts are not that peaceful hungry ghosts are created because of extremely unfortunate cases in which tragedy strikes a family or a person there are instances described where a person watches their entire family be killed in front of them. But it could also include other instances that are probably more likely, where a person determines their fate by themselves, where a truly unholy and immoral life results in no respect by the person's own family. This lack of reverence for the ancestors can breed this being that's hungry for something. And this hunger, it represents something. Although it takes the form of literal hunger, the hunger for food, the hunger that these ghosts feel comes from some aspect of their tragic life. For those with truly tragic lives, like those that lose their entire family, it could be an unhealthy yearn for peace to the point of madness. Madness that leads them away and leads them to become this hungry ghost, this truly disgusting being. For the immoral man, the hunger for food in the hungry ghost state could reflect their insatiable hunger for something in their life, be that power, fame, or money. Anything that tore them away from their family to the point where they're not respected once they've passed away. These hungry ghosts are thought to roam the world of people, and in many instances, they embody physical things, like dogs or cats, inanimate objects, 
and even people. In the Buddhist religion and in the Taoist religions, it is thought that possession by a hungry ghost can lead to immorality and mental disease. These beings are possessed to undergo these actions. And there are a lot of stories that feature these really creepy things. And now upon saying that, I'd be remiss if I were to not tell you one of these stories. So gather around everyone, it's creepy story time. This one comes from a Redditor in Singapore called Cubyface. That's C-U-B-Y face. Just in case you wanted to go and look up any other creepy stories that they may have. But this is also a good quote because it also explains some of the tradition followed by modern peoples in regards to these hungry ghosts. So let's, uh, let's go on with the story. And quote, Chinese seventh month starts 22nd August this year. For people not in the know, that's when Taoists and Buddhists believe that the gates of hell open for a month for spirits to wander the earth. In a multicultural country like Singapore, this is observed widely and even people from other faiths generally tend to err on the side of caution and observe certain customs during this period. Now, they say err on the side of caution here because people want to do things to keep the bad luck that these ghosts bring, to keep that away, so there are customs that are followed, and that's what they reference. All right, let's go on. This period is also when stranger things tend to happen, and I thought I'd share something which happened to a friend of mine. He and his girlfriend went to a certain KTV and KTV is karaoke television, so I'm guessing they went to some club. But anyway, quote, went to a certain KTV in the central part of Singapore during the seventh month a few years ago. Now, this is a big no-no for various reasons. It's believed that spirits are attracted to dark spaces. KTV rooms are generally very dark, and music and singing as entertainment. What he's saying there is that the hungry ghosts are attracted to dark spaces, and they're also attracted to music and singing very loud things. So that's another two strikes for the couple there. But again, we go on. Quote, they spent a few hours in the room singing, had fun, and then left to make the payment. But then at the front desk, the cashiers tried to charge them for three people and kept insisting that when they arrived, they had another lady with them. My friend argued with them, and finally they decided to check the footage from the security cams in the room. To his horror, the footage showed three people in the room. An additional lady crouched on the sofa just behind his girlfriend, looking at the floor throughout the session. And when my friend and his girlfriend left the room together, she stood up and left with them, all the while still gazing at the same spot on the floor. As the cashiers watched the video, it dawned on them what was happening, and they waved the charges for the third person. Now, do you have chills? Yeah, I have chills running down my spine right now. Just imagine. I mean, you saw the picture, right? Imagine that wispy creepy monster sitting right next to you on the couch oh my god but again this is not a halloween episode this is a desire based episode so what was the desire there why was the ghost present in that room could it have been that this hungry ghost lady was jealous of the couple maybe she had never found someone in her life maybe she wanted friends she just really liked karaoke nonetheless it serves as an example for a desire gone extreme a desire that has possessed the whole person to the point where they drove themselves mad this lady drove herself mad and whether you believe in ghosts or not doesn't make much of a difference just think of her as an example for the extremes that can come from human desire on this episode let's explore these everyday aspects of desire that cloud our everyday judgment and lead us to a downfall 
as a spirit capable of true virtue. On this episode, let's explore how desire leads to suffering. When we yearn for something, it is an inherent want that is felt by every aspect of our system. It controls you because all parts of you are working towards that goal, that goal you've placed in front of yourself. If you listen to episode two, you're probably well versed in addiction. But the long and short of that is that when you want or when you crave, that thing that you want or that thing that you crave becomes ingrained into your mind and into your body. And the body has some very powerful systems that urge it into a path where it can work towards those desires and hope for those desires so it can receive whatever it desires. And this can get out of hand in some cases where what one desires enthralls their entire existence and their being. This is how immoral people are made because they fall into an addiction for something. And like we said, this could be anything. This could be for power. This could be for money. This could be for fame. Things that deviate from the good and turn men and women into vessels of corruption. Vessels that truly and fully work for themselves and exert will outwardly towards others. Exert that will in the hopes of urging people into their path where they can get their desires. Sometimes even forcing people and hurting people so that they can get their desires. This is a vessel of corruption. And this is no way to live a life as something that only searches and begs and pleads and maybe even does wrong, wrong against others. This person becomes a hungry ghost in life and their hunger for whatever they find, whatever they desire, cannot be filled. It's important that every person understand this and know that we all struggle with these facts. We struggle with them because we are predisposed for desire. That could be the basal desire for survival, survival by the means of food and shelter. But what we see now are desires more intricately developed on the back of the human social hierarchy. Nonetheless, these desires can corrupt people, especially when the societies that we've built fail them. They can fail them in terms of they're not getting the necessary materials for basic life. It could also fail them if that person is not getting the power, fame, or money that they desire. And nowadays, this is much more likely and much more prevalent. And what occurs is that they go against that society. They complain about the faults of that society because they haven't gotten what they desire and because a desire has filled some need within them. But it could also fill a pure want too. And a need or want will drive them out of their state, whatever state they're in, and it'll drive them towards that desire. The bottom line is that these desires lead to the downfall of the person. For so much as the soul is anchored amongst the physical, it loses in spirit. Nothing makes the person other than the person. Not money, not power, not fame. Consumerism is a very good example of this fact. Consumerism is the belief that happiness and fulfillment can come from purchasing items. And this is a great tool for companies that sell items. Companies have become about selling to the consumer because consumers are desiring more and more. And these economic policies are geared towards consumption nowadays, not towards products of quality, craftsmanship, or rarity. It's geared towards consumption more and more and more. 
I mean, you tell me why my computer suddenly stops working or is slow once the new model comes out. It's almost as if they make them to break down every two years. What this leads to is a consumer behavior that's driven towards product, the desire for stuff, and the hope that eventually getting that stuff would make them feel some kind of joy. But it's actually kind of funny, though, and it comes down to a feeling that I'm sure that most of you have had, if not all. Do you remember ever wanting something so bad? All you can think about was that thing, but then when you actually get around and get it by some means, you may feel happy for a little bit, but then it's generally a little underwhelming. I mean, in some cases you could say this, this is what I've been dreaming for, and you could be a little sad about it, but why do we end up feeling that way? It's probably because we build this up in our head and we make it something that it's not. In a way, it possesses us and it tells us how awesome it is and how awesome it will be to have it. And it tells us that you need to get that thing. And it's not unlike a hungry ghost, is it? And then when we do get it, we're underwhelmed and we may move to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then we're cycling around and around, waiting for something that will fulfill whatever desire we had. But they never really do. Because physical items will never fulfill the spirit or the mind. Because those can dream up whatever. They can create worlds, fantastic worlds. Things that we can't even dream to make in the real world. And when we fail in getting these desires, we feel sad. And we suffer for it. This desire, whatever desire, is leading to suffering, a state of suffering, emotional suffering, the sadness of not acquiring whatever product, whatever thing that we wanted. And again, we continue this cycle because we're predisposed to that fact. We yearn for things and we desire things because we are in the physical world. And we have these systems in our brain that sometimes turn against us. And they tell us that this, whatever this is, needs to be mine. And then again, when you don't acquire that, your mind will make you feel sad about that fact. And then time passes and you forget. Time passes and you find something else. And again, we go around and around. And I have the perfect story to highlight this fact and to exemplify this. Plato's The Republic is a writing that has influenced and still continues to influence Western thought. Philosophical thought in the Western world from government and justice to virtue of the man and his role in society has been influenced by this book, by Plato, because he discovers aspects of humanity that we still adhere to today. And he writes this long oration and ends it with a story. Now, I don't know if you've ever read The Republic, but it ends with something called the myth of Ur. And that's E-R, Ur, the myth of Ur. And I want to tell you that story, the journey that Ur undergoes. So here is the myth of Ur. And I say myth, and you will find it everywhere as myth, but just know that scholars say that it might not be exactly a myth. It's a work of fiction, but we're going to call it a myth of Ur. So here's the myth of Ur. It begins actually at the end of a very long battle. And after ten days, people came to clean up the bodies and set them to pyres. And amongst the dead... The dead, rotting corpses, the people came across a relatively fresh corpse of the man Ur. And they were stunned. But they continued to clean the bodies, clean up the battlefield. And then 12 days later, 
when it was Ur's time to be set to burn on the pyre, the funeral pyre, he jumped up, alive, and quickly said to all those gathered around him, I have to tell you about the world beyond our own. He said that as his soul left his body, killed in battle, his physical self, Ur was greeted to a wonderful place that had an opening going up and one going down. And in the middle of these two passageways sat judges. He was in a line, and he watched as those before him were ordered by the judges to either move up into the heavens, if they were just in life, and down to the earth, if they had committed evils in life. But when they got to Ur, they told him that he would be a messenger to the humans for what happens at this place, and that he was to observe and report back to his people in time. So Ur observed. At first, he noticed people coming back from the passageways that led to the heavens or to the underworld, and he said that these were the souls that departed death after judgment. And as they entered this splendid place, in what can be described as a limbo, they gathered in a meadow, and they greeted people that they knew and exchanged stories. Ur reports that those from the heavens questioned the people of the underworld about what they had seen there, and the people of the underworld did the same. Those in the heavens had lived in peace, sustenance, and bliss for 1,000 years, but those in the underworld had found 1,000 years of torture for the unjust actions they committed. Since they lived in these states for 1,000 years, they lived for about 10 human lifetimes and they paid their crimes tenfold. If a person in the underworld got there because of murder, they were served ten times the pain of that murder in death. Conversely, the good people in the heavens were rewarded under the same scale. So, each of the groups stayed for seven days in the meadow, and on the eighth day, they were told to get up and go on a journey. And this journey lasted five days, and they reached a place where the light touches the heavens and the earth. At this place, a speaker greeted them, and as they spoke, the speaker told them that they were on the cusp of another cycle that will end inevitably in death. And the spirit told them that they were to choose a new life to possess. These lives included those of animals and humans. There were poor, starving people, Honest, hard-working people, famous people, strong people, tall people, all mixed and offered to the souls. All except Ur could choose a new life to inhabit. For Ur was to return in his own self. And as the people gazed at him on top of the funeral pyre, Ur warned that this, this next thing, is the greatest trial of all. For the first to choose was a soul from the heavens, and in his greed he chose a tyrannical leader. But he failed to examine this life closely, for this leader was cursed to eat his own children. And when he blamed the speaker and the angels and the judges, his words were for naught, and his situation occurred to all those that had come from the heavens, for their souls were left untempered by virtue for a thousand years. But the people that came from the underworld 
had felt the pain caused by ill judgment, and they carefully examined the life they chose in the hopes of leading a good life on earth and avoiding the pain of the underworld for another thousand years. After all the souls chose their new lives, they traveled in line to a plain near a river, and quenched from their journey, they bent down and drank water from the river, and the water from the river caused them to go to sleep, and the more they drank, the harder they slept, and the more they slept, the more they forgot about their time in the afterlife. But Ur did not drink from the river, for he was told not to, and he woke up atop the funeral pyre at the dawn of the twelfth day, and he told his story to the people of Ur. And there goes the story of Ur, the myth of Ur. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a very interesting myth, to say the least. The morals within it are very interesting to unpack. The story signifies the cloudiness of judgment on the part of desire. For all those that lived in the heavens for 1,000 years, they were doomed. They had been living in complete bliss. Nothing was to bother them. Not any need for food, no conflicts, no instances where virtue, true virtue is needed. And they wanted to continue that life. They desired it because they had felt it for so long. But they were cursed and they chose new lives that led them to the underworld. And for those that had felt the burning tinge of hell, well, they were made very wise and they were careful to never return to the underworld again. So they were careful of the life that they chose. They chose modest lives with modest people, good people, to ensure themselves that they would never reach this point again. But the funny part of this myth, or maybe the sad part of this myth, is that it's just a cycle. And 1,000 years in the heavens, one time, will lead you to 1,000 years in the underworld the next. 1,000 years in the underworld, one time, will lead you to 1,000 years in heaven the next. Plato creates this instance where souls jump back and forth between 1,000 years of bliss and 1,000 of suffering. And it points to our desire. There were desires on both ends. Those in the heavens desired to keep the status quo. They wanted to remain in the same vein that they were in this afterlife. So they chose people in these high positions, like the tyrannical leader. Those that had come from the underworld desired to never be there again. So they chose people with more mundane lives, lives closer to true virtue, modest lives that will hopefully lead him to the heavens in the next afterlife. But in the end, and eventually, both of them will suffer at some point, because eventually, someone's going to be in the underworld. It may be shifted 1,000 years, but someone will be serving time in that underworld, in that torturous environment. And even after they chose, they went and they drank from the river, and they forgot. And eventually, they will be reborn into this new life that they chose for themselves. And this story falls heavy on predetermination, something that nowadays isn't really adhered to because we believe that you can change in life. We believe in the idea that a person can change throughout their life. And it's true because people can. The desires change, so the person behind those desires has to too. But what is predetermined or what's preset is that predisposition for desires. That's already in us. We can desire things. 
things other than just the basic stuff needed to keep us alive. And those desires drive us to do things to get them, to achieve them. And whether you or someone else is suffering at the hands of those desires, there is a human suffering. If you yourself don't achieve those desires, you'll suffer because of it. Because they've taken control of you. And if you do something to topple another person, another person's desires maybe, go against them, hurt them in some way, you're contributing in their suffering. Now we began this program talking about the folklore of the Buddhist religion and the Chinese and Vietnamese peoples. And I think it's very interesting to look at how the Buddhist religion deals with desire and with suffering. In the Buddhist religion, desire is defined, along with ignorance, as the root of all suffering. Now let me explain a little bit about the Buddhist religion, which is centered around a spiritual guidance for the individual and is very flexible in his application. Buddhists don't believe in a god, nor do they worship some higher deity, because they believe that things are constantly changing and that we're made to adapt to these changes as human beings. They believe that life is both endless in the way that it cycles, but that it is also full of uncertainty and of suffering. In one of the four noble truths, the tenets of the Buddhist faith, this suffering is clearly defined. The second of four noble truths claims that suffering is caused by selfish craving and personal desire. And the Buddha himself said, quote, desire is the root cause of evil. And he worked in life to rid himself of that desire and to find some sort of spiritual enlightenment, some peace in the soul. To the Buddhists, the suffering of man is referred to as dukkha. Now, I'm not an expert in the Buddhist religion, but what I could gather is that it doesn't translate over very well. It does not translate literally to suffering. And that's just like the next word that we're going to cover. But dukkha refers to the suffering of man. And it functions in the uncertainty and in the suffering that occurs at the mundane level. So we can understand it in that way. Desire itself is referred to by the word tanha, which defines the desires for food, for water, other cravings and addictions. Tanha is the root cause of dukkha, and dukkha leads to tanha. And here again we're greeted with another cycle, where desire is the root cause of suffering. And the only way to break away from that suffering is to delve deeper into desire. Just as we saw in the myth of Ur, humans are oscillating around and around. But each time we turn to a new cycle, we lose some part of ourselves. And now what do we mean when we say that we lose a part of ourselves in this process? Well, we can imagine the cycle of suffering to desire to desire to suffering. We can imagine it in this way. Imagine that you, that we are a ship. Our body is represented by the ship on the seas. And what we sail on is a sea of desires. With each wave that hits our hull, a desire comes to us. And for most of these, we do a very good job of breaking them down. Like desires for food and for water and for shelter. We easily cut through the water as our hull or our self-spirit can brunt the oncoming forces. But imagine a larger wave, a wave that hits the hull and rips into it. It may not even be that deep, as the ship can still sail, 
but it does damage. That was a large desire, a desire for something more in which we lost the part of ourselves to achieve. This breach in our hull begins our suffering because now the waters of desire are rushing in and all we can hope to do is rush to the shore and repair ourselves. But we are stranded in open waters and we accelerate. And again, splash! Another large wave hits us. More parts of the hull are exposed. And another boom! Pieces are flying. And yet another crack! And we are taking on more water than we can handle. And soon we are sinking into our desires. Drowning the faint light above, the light above the sea surface, becomes more and more dim. And see, this is what we mean when a piece of us is lost in desire. Because when we succumb to desires, we invite suffering into ourselves. The water rushes into us, the waters of desire. These cycles that we undergo lead us to our demise. In the Buddhist religion, that means death of the true person, but it can also refer to the corruption of the spirit and the creation of a vessel of corruption, as we said earlier in this program. A person that's so fallen from true virtue and manifested in desire. A desire that breeds suffering. It's something sad to think about. To think of all those in their ivory towers, lives full of searching and searching for something to take their suffering away, only to have it return once they've achieved that goal. So, if you're listening to this right now, be like Ur. Understand that this cycle can be broken so long as we do not yearn for things and simply understand life as it comes to be, as it plays out in front of us. Plan for the future, but don't bend wills to achieve that plan. Flow across the waters unscathed and brace for oncoming desires. Desires that you know are coming. Break them away. Live for yourself and do right by others. Take hold of what you need and don't break yourself for what you want. And if you come across a being so lost in desire, do not mock them, for you know that they are suffering much more than you. Be their lifeboat. Lift them from beneath the surface of the water and allow them to breathe in the air. Be their salvation. Because it may be, it just may be, that those people don't work only to fulfill the desires that they have. Maybe they simply do so to be free of the stranglehold that desire has on them. Even if it's for just a moment, true freedom is like a breath of fresh air. I want to close out today's program with a quote from prolific Greek writer Nikos Kazantzakis who had been nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature on nine different occasions. Sadly, he never won one, but he's very famous for novels like Captain Michalis and The Last Temptation of Christ. And of course, his most famous novel, Zorba the Greek, which became a movie and was actually very popular in the U.S. Kazantzakis was a very religious man. He spent his life digging deeper into his faith. From his youth, he struggled with existential thoughts. And he struggled to find the right way to live life. And his life was built upon that struggle. And his novels benefited from his restlessness, his restless mind. And he took it upon himself to travel and to see the world and to see people, to gain new experience 
and to find himself amongst the people of the world. And even in his later life, diagnosed with leukemia, he continued to travel against the advice of his physicians because he felt that was the way, that was his way to discover himself. And it was on one of these return trips that he fell very ill and passed away. On his epitaph, it reads, quote, I hope for nothing, I fear nothing, I am free. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Logs, a podcast dedicated to understanding. Please subscribe so you're notified of new episodes and find us anywhere you find podcasts. And please remember to laugh a little.